dear listener, and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast that until 30 minutes ago thought those chonky robot boys were actually robots. Well, I did anyway. I'm Nathan. I'm Brendan. I'm James. And I'm Stacey. Well, we're back in the past this week, doing what the past does best, being a rich, well-realised backdrop for some top-quality Doctor Who skylarking. It's the Doctor and a bunch of comedy Vikings versus some big, stupid monsters with lots of teeth. So let's see who wins, who loses, and who's stupid enough to take odds on the outcome in The Girl Who Died. having a little bit of a Todd experience with this one, I have to say. I said earlier that Series 9 was my least well-known bit of Doctor Who and the one that I'd kind of never gone back to. And watching this and next week's episode, I think this is extremely good Doctor Who and that next week's is kind of in quite a different way. What's been your story with Series 9, Stacey? Yeah, I had a similar thing at the beginning that I sort of watched it and couldn't really keep it in my head. And then when I was writing Who is the Doctor 2, we had to kind of watch everything. And I think I was living in Cameroon at the time and I've got the DVDs and <laughs> I'm trying to like get through <laughs> Doctor Who and I got no internet. And and I, I got to this and I was like, this is this is really good. Like, what is this gem? Like, this is, this is amazing. Mm. Um, I feel broadly the same about Series 9. I think that like it rewards repeated viewings. So it was maybe a bit weak, sort of the first round, but there's so, so many layers in there. Like, like I miss the hybrid stuff. You know, they say, oh my gosh, a hybrid, like they're, you know, driving a Prius every week. <laughs> and I didn't even notice until like the end. I was like, oh yeah, there's a hybrid around, you know, that stuff. So, so it's stuff is layered, but I think more subtly than probably it should be. Um, so that's, you know, terrible for first time viewers, great for long-term viewers. So, you know, yay for fans, I guess. But um, I absolutely adore this story particularly. I, I just, I find it's, it's my Uber Doctor Who. Like it is just absolutely everything I want from Doctor Who is right here in this one single story. And it seems very much designed that way, doesn't it? It's a, a Doctor Who story where Clara in particular is aware of the tropes that constitute a Doctor Who story and where the Doctor is as well. And she's the one noticing the beats as they happen. You know, the Doctor doesn't mm -hmm. have a plan. He's doing a thing that's not going to work and that isn't consistent with his character. Then he has an aha moment, which she actually spots happening. Yeah. And then it becomes <laughs> the Doctor Who that we love, which is we beat the monsters by being nicer and sillier than them. And, and, and having a having a worse special effect. I mean, it's, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> there's that beautiful moment, speaking of that, where, you know, he's, he's given up his... You know, he's like, we just have to leave. Like, you know, these people are going to die. And then they're talking and he's listening to the baby crying and then baby stops crying and he he's decided to stay. Mm, but I think it's a bit after he's decided to leave. What he has decided to do is lead them into a battle and give them a glorious death. And that's the best that he can do. And then when he hears the baby, Clara, that's when Clara puts her hand to his face. Is that what you're talking about? Mm. Yeah, because there is a point where he's going to leave when he's in the meeting with the villagers and then he kind of decides to stay when he hears the baby as well. I kind of feel like it runs it runs through some like very Doctor Who-y tropes, right? That like, you know, the beginning of Doctor Who, you know, is basically like there's pacifists and we have to like stand up and fight, right? That's sort of like the Daleks. And, yeah. um, and then you get to Patrick Trotton era and it's like, you know, evil must be fought, right? And, and so it's kind of like, you, you know, the doctor's first approach is like, you should all just run away and that doesn't work. So it's like, okay, now we're going to stand and fight and that doesn't work either. And what they're looking for is what you're saying. It's like, there's a moment where it's going to be this unexpected third way. Like we're not going to do the expected thing. And Clara knows that's coming and the doctor knows it's going to happen, even though he has no idea what it's going to be. And you're right, there's that moment you can see it. And it's it, like, it's really showing us behind the curtain how Doctor Who works, I think. Mm. And it does something that a few other scripts in this era do, where the opening tease is setting up the premise of the episode because they've just liberated some other planet. And, you know, Clara's been in the spider mines for too long and she's got a love <laughs> bug that's going to suck her brain out through her face, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> 
And Clara raises the question, what happens to people after we save them? Yeah. And the doctor's like, well, I, you know, I can't do everything. I can just mm-hmm. give people a chance. And then this story, the overarching story, sort of explores how that works when you take away the TARDIS, you take away the sonic sunglasses, and all you have is the local technology, local knowledge, and people at your disposal. And can, you know, can that still work? Which is, it, yeah, it is Doctor Who in microcosm. It's, you know, saving the universe with a kettle and some string. Yeah. What's funny is it reminds me of Frontios, remember? Uh, Frontios has this thing which is never kind of mentioned before and never comes up again, that the Doctor shouldn't be interfering in Frontios because it's, you know, on the boundaries of our knowledge. It's it's far, far in the future and he can't interfere because whatever he does will have massive ramifications and then he interferes anyway and just tells them not to tell anyone <laughs> and it, <laughs> and so here the problem is it's not the usual sort of fixed point in time or any of that sort of nonsense the idea is that he can only do things he says that cause ripples rather than causing big waves and so that's initially why he wants to leave remember that's how he yeah. couches what happens if the Maya gets beaten in battle by the villagers, that that causes enough waves to potentially change history. And it just sort of turns out that making fun of the Maya is fine and they'll just sort of go away with their tails between their legs and we're, we're okay. Um, so here where we're doing that, we're looking at what the Doctor normally does and what the consequences are are um, in a way that we probably haven't done since the specials. And I think this does a better job of that perhaps than the specials. Yeah, I, th- I think that opening teaser is, like you say, it's this little microcosm of Doctor Who story that happens in like two minutes. And, and I love yeah. that it kind of, it makes the point that like we just leave it hanging. It's like, no, we, we, we solved the problem today. Yeah, they can come back. Like, you know, they're always going to come yeah. back. This is not a, I wipe them from the universe because they come back anyway, even when he does that. <laughs> and so yeah. it's kind of like, this is this is it. It's kind of like, I, I feel like it's like Tom Baker and Santaran Experiment being like, not today, thank you. And it's kind of like, yeah. that's Doctor Who, right? It's like, yeah, you know, if you try again, I'll, I'll stop you next time too. I'm getting some incredible Tom Baker vibes from Capaldi in this episode as well. Like really, really strong, I think. Mm-hmm. So this season seems to be examining who the Doctor is. And so we go back and relitigate the Daleks and Genesis of the Daleks in the first two-parter. In the second two-parter, we see the Doctor in a sort of Patrick Troughton style base under siege. It doesn't really go much beyond that, I think, but it at least gets us seeing the Doctor do very Doctorish things and Capaldi doing them in particular. But here I think there's a real proper analysis of what the Doctor does and how he beats his enemies. It's that weird thing that almost breaks the show, isn't it, where Clara says, you always win. You always win. And that's what you're good at, win, you know, go and win because that's what you do best. But I think I think it's how he wins that's the important thing that, that's established. And it's a sort of Holmesian thing, isn't it? The we win by being more fun than the villains. Yeah, I, I mean, I found it interesting that, that I, mean, I mean, it's like, yes, the Doctor always wins, but there's usually like a cost paid, right? And even in the previous story, right, it's like, you know, like basically like O'Donnell, you know, dies along the way and this is very tragic and so on. But this sort of like, well, that's just how Doctor Who is. You can't really do anything about that. And this time around, they spend a lot of time establishing all the tropes of Doctor Who and then they go and break the rules. And it's really clear yeah. like that last six minutes, they're like, oh, we're throwing it all out. We have shown you piece by piece how it all works, and then we're going to throw the whole thing away, and we are breaking the rules, and we are keeping the guest character alive this time, and we're going to see what happens now. <laughs> it's a disaster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it even breaks the episode itself. The episode is called mm. The Girl Who Died, yeah. and Capone <laughs> goes, well, I don't care what the episode title yeah. is. She's not <laughs> going to die. And in a way as well, this... A Shilda's death and Clara's death are bound very Mm -hmm. closely together. And so A Shilda will appear in four episodes this season, three or four. Four, Four. right? Um, And in the third episode, like, we see her going through the future, don't we? We finally see her at the very end of 
the universe and she's still with us. Um, but doing this to a shielding does lead to Clara's death. Mm-hmm. Mm. And um, so- something else that is interesting about that for me is, of course, the Doctor here is motivated by um, Lofty's crying baby. And <laughs> when when um, we do see a shielder again in the modern day, and the moments leading up to Clara's death, and the Doctor is railing against that and saying that his, I think he uses the phrase "reign of terror." Actually, like my reign of terror will know no bounds. And Clara's response is, "Your reign of terror will stop at the first crying child." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was only watching this a second time that I kind of got that link. And it's actually why things like things in the day of the doctor with clara often asked me if i dream and it's like well that has not no she hasn't (laughs) she hasn't asked you that once it's like i love it when the production team can weave this stuff through in just sort of natural moments and then pick up on it later and it's important in this episode but it is such a devastatingly clever line in the later episode as well and i do i do remember like at the time this went out, and of course Maisie Williams, hugely popular in Game of Thrones, there were people who were very critical of her performance in this, and I didn't get that at the time, and I don't get it now. I think she is brilliant and subtle and witty and likeable, and I think everyone just wanted her run, like running around with a sword and stabbing things like she does in Game of Thrones, but it's like she's an actor she can yes. do other things <laughs> yeah but i think i think partly the the backlash is because of that but also that's a very deliberate choice the character is a different character every time you see her mm. here she is a child she's a teenager and she mm. is innocent and afraid and then when you see her next week you know she it's been what 800 years yeah. Yeah. and she can't remember her past or what it was to love or, or her name or yeah. have you know, human yeah. emotion, basically. And then when you meet her again later in the season, she's become something else again mm. in response to what the doctor's done to her. Like it's a really actually quite a strong progression through those different characters for her, I think. Well, I think I think they play that out in the in the final scene, right? When you see her face, you know the the background spinning around, <sighs> yeah, and she goes from so sort beautiful. of happy to angry to determined, and it's just looks on her face, like the face is not, yeah, not cutting away there. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's really good, isn't it? Because we're going around her, like we're going around her with the background, and the first time we see her, she's happy. Then we go around her back, and then we see her, and she's sadder, and then the camera just goes straight on her face and doesn't let go. And that's where we see a, a real change in her expression. Yeah, she kind and of hardens. Get, yeah. 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 And then we get, and then we get to be continued. Yeah. So, so that sets her up as something really quite terrifying and we don't quite know why. But I think the thing that she does is she tracks the doctor. And so next week we will see how much like the doctor she is mm. and then um and then the following time in face the raven she has devoted herself to staying behind to help the people that the doctor leaves behind when he um runs off at the end of an episode and and you know the moment there's a moment where he's got his 2000 year diary in this and he's been looking up the mire and i just couldn't help thinking of Achilles' journal, of me's journal, the following episode. You know, both of them have been alive for so long that they have to rely on written words on a page in order to just remind themselves of what's been happening. And that's kind of the first hint of that here, mm-hmm. but we won't see it pay off till next week. Well, he, he gives it that look at the beginning, right, when he, he enters the village yeah. and, he, and he catches yeah. and he's... You can tell he's like, I know, I know this person from somewhere, and it's so obvious he's recognised her from his life, but he hasn't quite clued in, <laughs> and and then he's like, I know you from somewhere, and then later at the end he's realised why he knows her, and well, yeah. there's a moment too where he's talking with Clara and says something about immortality, and then Ashilda walks <laughs> he breaks in into on the conversation, yeah. Yeah, 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 and and. 
And so it's that thing. And I think it's a very Moffaty thing. Like, I think this is a very Matheson script, but it's a very Moffaty thing to do that sort of throwaway idea that premonition is just remembering things in the wrong order. There's no way that Moffat didn't write that. And so he's just remembered things backwards. Her becoming immortal has repercussions into the past as well as into the, into the future. And I think that's really just excellent. And, and I mean, why does he save her? And it seems to be that he saves her because he's thinking of Clara. He says that, doesn't he? That look on your face and the anger and kindness and there's going to be a day where, uh, you know, even remembering them hurts me so much I can barely breathe. And that's why he saves her. Like, Ashil is a storyteller, a, a, a writer, and the Moffat thing is, isn't it, to say we're telling a story, actually, no, that story's not good enough, let's tell another one, and it happens twice here. You know, the story is the Doctor trains them all up and they horribly defeat the Mire in some terrible way, like, because it's never going to be they all get killed, that's not going to happen in a Doctor Who story, but, like, they f- f- fight the Mire and then for some stupid reason they win. Then we go, no, actually, forget that, let's do the story where they make fun of the Mire and it, Ashildir does what the story title promises, dies for the sake of the town that she loves. And then we go, actually, no, no, let's not do that. Let's let her live because Clara, I think. Hmm. This story did have an interesting development in regards to that. It was originally called uh, Valkyrie. Ah. And the idea was that the Maya would actually abduct all the women in the village um, to crossbreed with them, thus creating hybrids. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and yeah, yeah, there was a there was a collective squirm just there. And re- reading reading between the lines in the complete history, it's like Moffat went um, one Jamie. I think you've gone a bit literal on the hybrid thing, and two also just no. Uh, so that then became flipped on its head um, because they started discussing doing a dad's army story with like mm-hmm. you know the Vikings left behind. It's like okay, well for that they need to abduct the men, and they need you know <laughs> um, Odin needs to drink a shot of testosterone and adrenaline, which yeah. is just like <laughs> oh, great, yeah. and nothing sus. <laughs> uh, it was at that point like so it, it had a number of working titles. The first one yes. was Valkyrie. The second was the All Father's Army. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and then it became Ragnarok. Uh, yeah. uh, that's been a working title before. Yeah, which uh, yeah. which that that version of the script is much closer, but there's still a few differences. Where instead of using the uh, emergency medical kit, the Doctor takes her to Khan. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, we yeah. could always do with more Claire Higgins. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, f- I find this really interesting because I think I think fundamentally the episode is about storytelling, right? And and it's mm. about you know like you've got like a shield who is the storyteller, but then also you 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 puncture the Myers story of like how fearsome they are and so on with like a really terrible story that like, um, and I I love (laughs) that they kind of like, they take like this new series effect that's that's disguising a classic series effect. Like I just feel like that's such great things. And it kind of says, yeah, Doctor Who works really well when it's kind of like, you know, classic series storytelling and, and like, you know, just how powerful that is. And I just, I absolutely adore this. And every episode so far has been about, telling stories like magician's apprentice and which is familiar is all about the function of the companions and the villains and also the doctor teaching davros the idea of mercy through a parable of himself which is kind of weird then you've got the fisher king who gets into your brain using the written word and makes you tell his story and the doctor even says to the fisher king last week this is where your story ends so it's it's been very literary and analytical of Doctor Who so far this season. And I do remember at the time I kind of thinking, I wonder, you know, what the people who don't own the Doctor Who cookbook by Gary Downey are making of all this. Um, but I've said this before. I then go, I don't care because I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Let us have this one. <laughs> like we can have this season. <laughs> Right, so um, 
Odin, who is played very, very well by David Schofield, no criticism to David Schofield, uh, was originally cast with another actor. Ooh, and it's exactly who it? you it's exactly who you think. Brian Blessed. <laughs> wow. Correct. Unfortunately, shortly before filming, he collapsed That's on right. stage mm. as King Lear and oh, was diagnosed wow. with a heart condition. And it's like, maybe don't, maybe don't yeah. work for a bit. Uh, yes. So it was to be Brian Blessed. Um, Maisie Williams was cast first. She was the main guest star. But then it's like, oh, we're doing a story with Odin. We need someone a bit like Brian Blessed. Has anybody asked Brian Blessed? (laughs) (laughs) That thing where he appears in the sky in the Monty Python and the Holy Grail sort of cloud (laughs) is so great. It's so superb. It really is. Matheson's stuff has been funny before, but this is really, really good. So, you know, like the yo-yo is the doctor's way of kind of impressing them with technology. And, like, Clara's seen it before. It's like, oh, it's not the yo-yo, is it? And then then, then he does the voice. And then, like, when the big Odin appears in the sky and he tries something with the yo-yo and it fails, he goes, it's meant to do that in, like, his big Odin voice. Like, it's it's so wonderfully brilliant and he's so wonderfully crap. And that's kind of the thing about Doctor Who. You know, like, his own own special effects are a yo-yo. You know, it's so <laughs> homespun and so crummy um, compared to what the Maya can come up with. Literally held together with a piece of string. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that is such a great visual. It's so superbly funny and brilliant. All that business that he does is one of the reasons why he is my favourite Doctor. Like, yeah. And yeah, it like- is a very Tom thing. Like he's mm-hmm. channeling Tom all the time here, I think, and doing Tom's voice from time to time and stuff. Like, he just gets what works as the Doctor and what Mm. the role is. And given that this is a show about that, he's kind of the perfect person to do it. I mean, we said it's literary. This is like a short story. Simon uh, often complains that the new series of Doctor Who produces sort of 45-minute episodes that are just compressed four-parters. But this isn't that, is it? This is like a short story. It Mm. takes place over one night. The Doctor sort of turns up there's a problem and he solves it in a very doctorish way. And I think next week is that as well, like the scale of the story, mm-hmm. the complexity of the story, and the fact that it is about something more than just the action makes it, I think, a perfect new series structure for the, these two episodes. Yeah, I think I think mm. even, even though they have it to be continued and they have the parallel titles, they don't feel like two halves of a two-parter and, and I mean, you had very different kind of halves of a two-parter in the Under the Lake two-parter, only because of the time jump. But like, this feels like two separate stories that have a linking theme and a linking kind of character. Tom Spilsbury made a comment about this when we were talking about the season in one of the Dalek episodes at the beginning of the season. It would have been much more interesting if these hadn't been a two-parter. If this story had occurred maybe where it is, and then part two had occurred after the Zygon two-parter. So you leave her doing her own thing. You come back and see the the impact instead of immediately coming back to the character. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've long held that opinion as well. And, you know, she could have even had a cameo in the Zygon two-parter. Like, um, like yeah, Billy Piper. In the background. <laughs> yeah, like Billy Piper in Partners in Crime. You just go, hold on, what? And then, you know, you go, you go back to her story with- um, with Sam Swift. Do you know, I actually tend to disagree, and I'll tell you why. I think that what happens next week is that we see a very different type of Doctor Who. So this one is the classic Doctor Who episode that hits all those beats. And now we get a picture of the Doctor not as a sort of comedy hero, not as the hero of The Curse of Fatal Death, but as the character that both Russell and and Stephen Moffat kind of want him to be, which is this sort of tired, jaded person. And so we get we get the fun Doctor in one episode, and then in the next episode we get a much more interesting and nuanced portrayal of what the Doctor is, not just 
from the way he behaves in the story, but from the similarities between him and me. And so we do get to see her back later in the season, but I think that allowing us to forget about her for a bit in the middle of the season and then bringing her back for Face the Raven is the right choice. And I think that these two form a brilliant pair. And, like, some time has passed, hasn't it, between the two? Like, the, the Doctor has been and seen her somewhere else, like in a leper colony. It'll come up next week. He's actually visited her and looked at her from a distance to see how she's getting on at some point. So both for him and for her sometime has passed uh, between these two, but they're next to each other, I think, because they're they're mirrors of one another or there's a really salient contrast between them that says something about the Doctor as a character. I think I think it makes the contrast much more stark having yeah. them right next to each other. That like that so that impact would have been lost, I, yeah. I suppose, but I I like to play what if. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the the bit that really stands out to me is the the bit when he looks in the in the water and sees his reflection. And I remember I remember Moffat saying like, "Oh, we're going to explain why you know he looks like Peter Capaldi, who looks like you know who's been in Doctor Who before." And I'm like, well, "You don't you don't need to do this. We didn't need to explain why the Sixth Doctor looked like that guard that like you know Peter Davison once met. Like this is <laughs> we don't need it." And and then they put it in deep breath, and, and in deep breath the Doctor is like, "Who frowned this face for me?" I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's fine. That's enough. You've acknowledged that you yeah. know you've met met this face before yeah. or whatever. That, that's good enough." And I was really against them going for this, and then when they did it, I find it amazing. I actually, it, just, it makes me tear up every time. Um, I think the idea that like, like the doctor needs to hold himself to the mark and he's not actually strong enough. And so he's like, you know what, who was the 10th doctor? He was way stronger than I was. So I'm just going to remind myself of, of that. Um, and it's like, he also needs a companion who will just cut through and tell him what to do. And that's not Clara, it's Donna. And so no. he's just, yeah. he's just drawing on this previous strength that he used to have. And I think that sort of we as viewers recognize as like, you know, yeah, that was in a way doctor who in its heyday. Um, and, and so it's like, that's just such a, like the, the moment you see David Tennant reaching out the hand for the TARDIS in flashback, you're like, oh yeah, this is a much more confident doctor. Like this doctor has been very uncertain. He like has to have his predecessor called Clara on the telephone in the first episode can kind of like set things straight because he's not really sure who he is or what he is. And, you know, he's a good man in the previous season and so forth. Um, and he finally kind of gets that certainty here and the first thing he does is he makes a terrible mistake. <laughs> He's like, I'm just going to say the next person I see. And it's a bad idea. Uh, and he even admits it in this episode. It's, I find it really funny that he's like, at, at the end when they get back to the TARDIS, he's like, yeah, I was angry. I was emotional. I, and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I've, I've done a terrible thing. And like, oh, I, I thought they yeah. were just going to like, you know, be like, oh, no, I did the right thing for now. And we would learn consequences. But no, he's already figured them out and they're, they're not good. I have this thing, though, about those doctor rules, like the rules which the doctor is supposed to follow and he follows them by not saving people, by not doing a good thing. And those rules seem to me to be the sort of thing that I want the doctor to break. And Mm. it's the reason that I'm not on board very much with Waters of Mars because Mm. I think the doctor did the right thing by saving those people on the base. Mm -hmm. Um, And here, like saving someone's life, and you can save someone's life is absolutely a thing. Look at how central she was to that village. And, yeah, yeah like, like I want him to break those big giant rules in order to save people. And we're there with chuckles, you know, crying oh. over her body and responding to her coming back to life. And there's no doubt in my mind that he does the right thing mm-hmm. uh, by, by making that happen. On that point with Waters of Mars, I think the difference is that in the Waters of Mars, the Doctor breaks the rules to prove that he can break the rules. It's to right. prove that he's in charge. The Doctor here breaks the rules because of his affection and gratitude towards a shielder. And at the end, back in the TARDIS, when he's saying, I think I've made a mistake, I'm reminded of Jamie Matheson's earlier script, Mummy on the Orient Express, where he says to Clara at the end, sometimes the only choices you have are bad ones, but you still need to choose. You know, Jamie Matheson, I think, only writes four or five scripts, but he comes in and immediately slams down, this is who I think the Doctor is. And that is internally consistent across all of his work. I was having lunch this week with 
friend of the podcast, Anson, who said he wished that Jamie Matheson had taken over from producer as Stephen Moffat. And he's yeah, like, I'm not saying too. that as a negative thing to Chris <laughs> Chibnall. I enjoy bits of that. Actually, funny thing, he was saying, I rewatched The Power of the Doctor recently, and I had, oh, what do you, what do you call it? I had my Brad moment, and I'm like, the Todd experience. He said, yes, I had a Todd experience. <laughs> <laughs> Brad moment. <laughs> so, sorry, Todd. Uh, he got one letter right. Um, but, yeah, it, it is this thing of... The choices you may you may have are bad and you may regret them, but you make the choice that is right in the moment. You see, I think it's more complicated than that. I think he saves a shield here because he's terrified of losing Clara, and he basically yes. says that. And I think David Tennant's doctor saves the people in Waters of Mars because he can't bear listening to them suffer. And, uh, you know, he's walking away from the base trying to do the right thing and he hears over their audio people screaming and crying and terrified and he can't mm. just, you know, like he's not just doing it to big note himself, he's doing it because of the kindness and compassion that characterise him as a character. Now, can you explain that to a uh- Time Lord Victorious. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, that's the thing, though. When he gets back to Earth, it's about, well, I broke the rules and I have the power and I saved yeah. you little people. Yeah, I think mm. when he goes back, it's yeah. to help people. And then the idea is that the power corrupts him. And, yeah, it's like, okay, so, yeah, the power to switch the trolley onto the track that has no one on it is it, that's going to corrupt you? No. <laughs> it's, it's switching the trolley onto the track with the people is going to corrupt you. <laughs> so, so you, you know what? Matheson's next and last story is Oxygen. Yes, mm-hmm. he has a good track record. He's really yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, four for four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he ha- the, the Doctor has this scene where, where he's shouting at the Time Lords, which is is such a incongruous scene in in New Who that you know you you see this in Classic Who in like Attack of the Cybermen or whatever, and you just start shouting mm. at the sky, being like, "Oh, I see, it's you," you know. And this time he's like, "And if you have a problem with that, like, you know, like, yeah, yeah." yeah. Um, Mm. So good. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. He's just superb in this. Uh, like a show that's about who the Doctor is as a character has to have Capaldi as the yeah. lead <laughs> because he's just the Doctor in a way that maybe almost no one else is, I think. Also, at the time, there was a bit of criticism of following one character through time, as in, as in a shielder. But this pair of episodes makes me think of the arc. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and even mm. even though like there are there are dodgy aspects to the arc, it's often held up as it, with the classic series one of the few times we do something time travelly with time travel, mm-hmm. and. You know, I think it's such an interesting idea, especially we've been discussing since Fear of a Welsh Planet, that it's hard to do a story with a time travel show. Yeah, yeah. But to then be able to do one over thousands of years because you have another immortal character, it immediately opens up the universe. And it's kind of a shame that... Maybe they haven't considered it. Maybe she hasn't been available. But I would have loved to see Maisie Williams give us a few appearances here and there over the years. They, they should just have her in the background every time we go to Earth. And she's just standing around. They <laughs> should just done lots of pickup yeah. shots to slot into episodes <laughs> all over the place. Well, I'm still waiting for the um, the inevitable four box sets from Big Finish, Clara and me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems like it was set up just for that, doesn't it? Some of the criticism you talk about, I think, is partly like that they were going to the well a bit often about like, you know, immortal beings who were going to be around at the end of time or whatever. And, you know, you've got Captain Jack and then you've got like, you know, like Orson mm-hmm. Pink is, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of time. Like there's a lot of people turning up at the end of time and, you know, the doctor gets to the end and, oh, which one will it be this week? And, oh, it's Lady Me this time. And, you know, it's it, like like there was quite a bit of that floating around. Um, and I think with hindsight, mm-hmm. it actually feels like probably it's more of a, a riff that Moffat was interested in. Um, but at the time, it just felt like, okay, well, which of the many characters is going to turn up at the end of the universe this week. Well, it's like when you die and, like, aliens are falling over themselves to kind of, you know, kind of harvest your soul or whatever. Is it Missy? Is it the people from Twice Upon a Time? Is it the people from Demons of the Punjab? You know, they're all there trying to kind of uh, record the event, I think. Um, is it the people who bring Harry Kim back from the dead or is it the people who bring Harry Kim's not-girlfriend back from the dead? <laughs> <laughs> I love it when Voyager gets to the point where it starts copying itself. Sorry, different podcast. 
I think what I want to really know is like, does the Meyer technology last to the end of time? I mean, it's the, 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 the Meyer create this immortal being. Well, but aren't they using it all themselves all the time? I, I you know, yeah. Why aren't there a lot of Meyer kind of, you yeah. know, like uh, <laughs> hanging around in that scene with the Doctor and Maisie at the very end? You would think. One thing that I think is worth mentioning is how doctorish Clara is. And I think it links in with what you were saying, Stacey, where Donna was there to push back against the doctor, but Clara can't do that because she is so much like the doctor. And it's that scene with her talking the mire into leaving at mm-hmm. the very beginning, which I think is just extraordinary. And and there's even a moment where Amaya walks past her really quickly, uh, like really close, and she sort of gets out of the way and she goes, oh, hello, as if she's Tom. You know, like it's the, <laughs> it's the most amazing thing. And so- and so Maisie gets to be her companion and do the silly mm. thing while she's talking the aliens away. Like she nearly is the doctor enough to solve this problem at the very beginning. It basically works except for a shoulder, right? And which is kind of like the, yeah. the season as a whole. Right? It's like you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a sort of an inverted version of the demons, where you know Joe jumping in front and saying no, uh, like actually solves the problem. Whereas the Time Lord's standing there going, "Oh, but but no, no, you really shouldn't. You really shouldn't wipe out this planet because it's nice and da da da." And Joe's to, and the demons like, "No, I'm going to wipe it out." And Joe jumps in, oh, no. So we've kind of got the subversion of that where usually the companion steps in, like with a leaf, for instance, in Rings yes. of Akaten, <laughs> and solves the problem that the alien god can't solve. But this time, the human and very understandable reaction of a shielder who's just seen a lot of her friends die is actually what creates the episode's problem. It's so good, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. so good. Yeah. And you kind of forget that it very, very quickly establishes how fond she is of those warriors and how fond they are of her with them Mm. arriving back and they've all arrived back no one has died you know at the beginning of the episode bringing the doctor and clara back and then they're killed and like she's still a child she's not Arya stark i mean she is a frightened girl but like she's so she's so fierce and so fantastic at that moment and i think the other really really good acting moment she gets is that speech and it's a backstory exposition speech about who she is and why the village matters to her. And Mm. she just delivers it like she's thinking it up as she's going along. It's so well done. She absolutely nails it. Like she's an outsider and a nerd and someone who's into storytelling, someone who doesn't conform to gender Mm. norms either. She's an outsider and she knows that wherever else she goes that isn't this village, she's going to be an outsider. She's not going to get the love and protection that she gets here. And I think, too, that that portraying a past, a village, like just a little village full of silly Vikings and stuff, you know, that those Vikings are people who who love her like it's so it's so clear and so well done it's um it's interesting what you say about her not conforming to gender norms because in one version of the script she was married to the village carpenter right and he was her front like she was the one that was actually doing all the carpentry (laughs) and and he was just the 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 storefront everybody thought he was the carpenter but it was actually her doing it behind the scenes that's awesome. <laughs> mm. I think I think there's something really beautiful about it, I think. Yeah. And I, I think also we often look back in history and assume that gender roles would have been what they were in our cultures around the 19th century, but it's not necessarily true. And there's lots of evidence that in Viking settlements there is a lot more equity and a lot more sharing of gender roles and tasks than we might have thought. So I I really kind of appreciate that, you know, she does have that comment, but at the same time, no one in the village treats her storytelling as silly or stupid. And it's actually it's actually really respected. Or the puppetry. And then and then, you know, when Lofty's baby's crying, it's Lofty comforting the baby. 
Yeah. Which, you know, we would assume. Or stealing that would, the baby. <laughs> stealing <laughs> why his lofty yeah, stolen yeah, baby. baby. <laughs> that's yeah. so doctor. Like, that's an almost Matt Smith doctor thing. It's just like, I can't yeah. possibly understand what sort of human interactions, uh, you know, happen around a baby. So he's yeah. stealing it, clearly. Yeah. And. <laughs> And, you know, Ch- Chuckles comforting a shilder and assuming the Doctor is going to make fun of him when actually the Doctor's just a little bit uncomfortable yeah. with such a genuine and raw expression of emotion. Like, earlier when he realises Clara's alive, he runs up and gives her a thumbs up and says, uh, you know, I'm still not good, good with the hugging. Oh, never mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. scoops her up and, and what have you. I think there is a lot going on here to kind of... we. I think we've spoken about before, you know, the past is kind of represented as us, you know, yeah. um, cele- sort of cele- theme park historical. That's it. Yes. Thanks, thanks, Pete. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of it's kind of also like, well, actually, no. If you you know, if you look back in history, the social roles were more complex than we often give them credit for. Yeah, I, I think it's also there's that that moment it's hinted that like both the Doctor and Clara have a bit of a crush on the Shilder, like early on. Yeah, and you're just like, <laughs> I'll fight oh, you for her. Yeah, I, I mean, like, <laughs> this is the only time I think you really see this kind of interest in somebody from Peter Capaldi's Doctor. And it's like, wait, what? Did that just really happen? And like, he's normally very asexual in, in his presentation. And so I love this moment. And it's just, yeah, they're both into her. <laughs> yeah. But, I, mean, I, I didn't necessarily read it as, as as sexual per se, but just that they were, you know, they wanted to make her their companion. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's sexual. I think it's meant to be sexual okay. with, um, oh, right. with Clara. <laughs> well, oh, with I'm not Clara sure about definitely. the doctor because the doctor, and he could just be, you know, it could be the intention that he's kind of covering it up but he just says you know you humans you're obsessed with this you know um yeah and again it's that sort of weird my hobbies you thing as well which we're getting from clara too (laughs) but that's a great i mean that is a great moment and i just think you know that's going to continue next week isn't it where she's going to present as a man for some of the time Mm -hmm. and then frock up as a woman you know in a very kind of girly womanly way at times as well and because she's read Malcolm Gladwell and has practiced <laughs> sounding like a man for a for 10,000 hours or something she can do it perfectly <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say one more thing about casting because in uh, the role of Heidi, as the Doctor nicknames a particular <laughs> Viking with a braided beard, we have Barnaby Kay, who would later go on to play Wallander, so the one who's not Kenneth Branagh. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Oh, they've got a Dane in or something, have they? Of, of that descent, yes. But, right. So, um, so but it's Wallander in, <laughs> in real life, uh, he's married to Nicola Walker. Oh my god, that house uh, must Liv- be amazing! Yeah, Livchenko in Big Finish and just an amazing actress in many, many, many other things. And of, and of course, we got Ian Conningham as Chuckles, and I don't know what else he's done, but I'd like to see more. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think my last outstanding question is: Why are there South American eels in a Viking village? <laughs> it's just kind of there um also i looked it up i think that the eels produce like 860 volts um and they produce like one ampere for like two milliseconds like it is not going to do what they think it's doing (laughs) like eels are not not that good at conducting is there a line of dialogue where it's like get that stuff from clara's space suit which will amplify (laughs) the thing or something like clearly he's looked at least at the wikipedia page and has decided there has to be some hand wavy science fiction magic magic reason why it actually electrocutes people. It is great, though. I have to say that that resolution is really, really terrific because it's so simple. And when the Doctor hits upon it, he looks like such a madman Mm. as well, which is absolutely on points and in character. But Mm. it's that thing, like he hears a thing, he works out that it's eels, and right from there he's worked out, nope, we can win now, and he's absolutely nailed it at that moment. But I love that it turns on eels. And partly, I think, because Stephen Moffat is a big fan of the word fish (laughs) as well. Um, (laughs) He thinks it's hilarious, and I think eels is a pretty hilarious word too. 
Mm. I do also like how they're very dramatically aware eels because when he turns to the yes. crates and says, why did nobody tell me we have eels? They all light up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hi, here we are. Yeah. It's, it's eels with jazz hands. <laughs> There is one more thing I'd like to mention oh, yes. uh, before we go. Um, so, Ed uh, Bazalgette, the director, this is not his first career. No. He was previously a musician. Yes. He will go on, just before you say this, he'll go on and do next week's episode, and he also does uh, The Return of Dr. Mysterio. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, but way back in the 80s, he was the lead guitarist in a group called The Vapors who particularly Australian listeners may recognise for their hit song, Turning Japanese. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that takes me back. Which, okay, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> it really is. That was sort of formative, wasn't it? Like that was, uh, that was our time, I think, and I remember that incredibly well. So I, And it, like presumably he was in the film clip for that because I think the film clip had the minute, didn't it? Yeah. So we yeah. may have seen him. During our youth, I think, <laughs> on the telly. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. He is also uh, on the Board of Governors of Coal Hill Academy as well uh, because oh, he yeah. does direct three episodes of Class. Maybe oh, yeah. the first three. That's all the time we have for this week. We'll be back next week for some ennui, lassitude, and general world weariness in The Woman Who Lived. In the meantime, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can keep up with us on our website, flightthroughentirety.com, where you'll find all our social media links, as well as links to our other podcasts, Bonfinger, Jody Into Terror, Maximum Power, and Untitled Star Trek Project. Until next time, remember that we're past the Big Bang and dinosaurs now and well into the mounting sense of futility stage. So relax and enjoy the ride. Thank you very much for listening and good night. Good night. See you soon. Bye. That was Flight Through Entirety, starring Nathan Bodley, Brendan Jones, James Selwood and Stacey Smith. Theme arrangement by Cameron Lamb. This episode, Eels with Jazz Hands, was recorded on the 27th of August 2023 and released on the 15th of October. As is now well known, The Girl Who Died forms the second part of a trilogy alongside The Girl Who Waited and next year's Shudy Gartwear episode, The Girl Who Was Just Not As Well Dressed As The Doctor, starring Millie Gibson as Ruby Sunday. Because he does direct three episodes of Class. Maybe the first three. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what that is. No. <laughs> Never heard no. of it. <laughs> you didn't miss much. <laughs> <laughs> I actually kind of like I Class. Have a massive <laughs> I reckon we I, I love the Class novels. They, they wrote three novels and I found them in oh, Malaysia really? and, and the, I, I read them and they're like, these are really good. Like, that, that show could have worked. The Big Finish yeah. audios are quite good too. Yeah. No, look, the, on Big Finish- they work really well. Mm. Who's who's um Quill in Big Finish now? Someone different. They recast. Um, Dervla Cohen. Oh yes. my god. Yeah. 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 Malik is Angel thing. and the first Phoebe in Goodnight Sweetheart. Wait, isn't Devla Cohen also Mrs. What's-A-Face? From, yes. from the Cybermen. Cybermen, terrible yeah. Cybermen Christmas special. The yes. next Doctor, yes. that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought you meant the next Doctor, that terrible uh, announcement video with- um, Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi <laughs> turning well, up. All I saw was his hands. <laughs> like, you see his hands and he's wearing a wedding ring. And I just went, oh, my God, he's old and straight. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's okay. He's Peter Capaldi. All right. I reckon we probably we might may in some form or other, and I'm going to be vague in case he ends up as a. T- I, I, I think we've gotten out somewhere in there. I think yeah. I think we may do class at some point in the future. Oh, I see. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Like maybe. Maybe. I don't know. 
it, it, it has inspired me to watch the second episode. So, oh, the second episode is is really violent. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's incredibly gory. <laughs> That's the thing. I did. I didn't not. It's not. I was kind of like. I watched the first episode. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And then just didn't watch the rest. It, it <laughs> wasn't anything of I'm not watching this. It's like uh, the Simpsons spin-off showcase, right? Where yeah. in the first one, <laughs> Homer turns up to visit <laughs> Chief Wickham. And it's something like, I can't wait to see what adventures you'll have in this exciting new kind of setup or something. This exciting yeah. new kind of milieu. And it, that's what Capaldi yeah. does at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> first episode of Glass. It's just like, here, I, Ram, yeah. have a leg, and <laughs> I can't wait to see what exciting new adventures you have. Um, Ram's hot, anyway, as well. Yeah. I just thought I'd mention that. Smoking hot. I did I did just realise, though, that I've actually seen more of K-9 than I have seen in class. <laughs> so, maybe, maybe don't put that in the episode, given that you're a school teacher and you're supposed to be a teenager. Oh, he's a, not a teenager. Oh, no, no, the actor's not a teenager, but still. <laughs> he's a TV teenager. Oh, he's a TV teenager. What? He's forty. So, yeah. so I, I accidentally <laughs> outed myself as being sixty-four years old by accident on uh, a, an episode of Untitled Star Trek Project because I can't do that. The arithmetic that you do with decades. You know how normally right. you go on oh, 1990, oh, okay, so that's 20 years ago. You know, like you do that just all the time. Like it, it just doesn't seem possible, you know. So I overcompensated and said I was 31 in 1990 <laughs> when when um, when the Wesley was in Remember Me or whatever it is, whatever we were doing. I can't even remember. It might have been Remember Me. And Joe was saying how hot he was and I was saying I was a bit old for that at 31 and then Peter said, actually, you know, Weren't. <laughs> and, and what I did, this is the magic of editing, Stacey. I went back and re recorded myself <laughs> saying that line. The edit point happens during the word 1990, just <laughs> to make it seem seamless. And so now, if you download that episode, I say the right day, the right thing. So that's a thing that I can do. <laughs> You could, I could do you James's could've... voice as well, so I can just go back and <laughs> change all of his lines. He'll be you could have made it a clever. story arc yeah. where, where, <laughs> where you just get your age wrong every episode <laughs> and no one can pin you down. This is why I always wonder when I'm listening to episodes why I'm not on them. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>